0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to, des- was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word.
1: Amen. We are in First John, as you saw, chapter 3, and if you do not have a study guide, um, I think there's some in the back still left. You should grab one. Um, they have a bunch of stuff in it, including questions and, and summary of what we're going over today, but also uh, in the beginning, some instructions how to study your Bible. Uh, perhaps you've never studied your Bible before or know how to approach it other than just going, I'll read this today. It uh, gives you some basics about that, gives some appendixes about some of the things John has talked about. And it's just an overall, hopefully, helpful tool for you. Today's sermon, probably, um, had we been real uh, strategic about planning, probably been better for Father's Day, because uh, we talk a lot about fathers, uh, but... It's how the Lord laid it out, so we'll just trust that He knows what He's doing because He is omniscient and He knows much, much more than we do. But, as we begin, um, we are, as I said, talking about dads, and I remember uh, when my boys, I do have a daughter, but I'm going to talk about my boys a little bit, I remember when my boys were born. I should say I remember when at least two of them were born. We have three. One of them, um, I passed out in the middle of a contraction uh, in the hospital, not that I was having, my wife was having, I hold her hand, good job, babe, and then she looks at me, and she said, you look like you had a face of death, Um, and it was like, boom, right on top of her as she's pushing out my son, and it was because the temperature in the room, I need anything, you're up, you know, for whatever reason, babies never come at like three in the afternoon, it's like midnight, they start to want to come out, so... That's what happened, hadn't eaten anything for like, you know, 24 hours or something. Someone turned the temperature up to like 90 degrees in the room, and I was out. It wasn't the blood, it was just like sweaty, no food, gone. So when I came to, I was kind of on the floor, I guess, and the doctor looked at me, she's like, well, good thing you didn't piss on yourself, because that's normally, I guess, what happens. And then she instructed me to go sit on the chair, and so I uh, experienced the the remainder of the uh, birth, with a Starbucks in one hand and a muffin going, good job, babe. You know, so, <laughs> that, so one of them kind of doesn't count. I don't really remember that one as much. But the other two I, I do. And the thing about when, uh, when a child is born is that um, you wait nine months. You know, As you find out you're pregnant, you wait nine months to, to find out what this person is going to look like. Wondering what they're going to look like. You know, are they going to have any hair? Are they going to be bald? Are they, you know, are they going to look like me? Look like her? What, what, what are they going to look like? And then in a moment, they're there, and it's just like wow, you know, it's just it's an amazing experience, and you see what they look like. Although they're kind of smushed a little bit, if it's a normal birth like cone head, you're like yeah, let's push that down a little bit, you know. And but they typically, you know, they're, they're there, and it's amazing. And then uh, as you you know spend a lifetime with this individual, this person um, you kind of wait for them to 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 start to respond to you, and every little gesture when they're young is like oh they 're finally smiling even if they 're puking up when they do it and they're you know you're you're waiting for them to talk and to to speak and to walk and all these things to to have opinions eventually, and you wonder uh, what this person is now going to be like you know because they they're kind of Let's be honest, they're kind of pretty boring as really newborns. But then they start to have this personality. You're like, hey, what are they going to be like? Are they going to be like me? Are they going to do great things? Are they going to, you know, what? And then for, you know, 18 years, you know, I guess as long as they're with you in, in your home, you kind of watch, as I'm seeing, we have a 10-year-old and a uh, 7-year-old and a 5-year-old and now a, I don't even know, week-something old because I just don't remember that, um, And I get a year, and then I'll start counting. But you find that over that lifetime, or over those 18 years, you basically are watching a small version of yourself grow up. At least that's what I have experienced. For better or worse, my boys are like me. And sometimes it's a lot worse than um, I might want to admit. But they look like me in some ways. Uh, They sound like me. They think like me. Uh, They joke like me. They eat very disgustingly like me. They uh, are very loud like me. We've got a family. Some families are born with kids that are very passive and quiet. My kids never shut up. They are loud. You get in the car, and it's just like everyone's talking. Because if you ever eat, Kalen and I, we talk a lot. Um, And so they are loud like me. They smell for better or worse, like me. I mean, they just act like me. They're little versions of me. And I sometimes wonder, why are you doing that? And then I think, oh, because you're like me. And when they do uh, things that are, I guess, honorable or act in a way that's productive or pleasing, I gladly take credit for uh, those things and say, look, those are my genes right there. That's right, my son, amen. And then... When they do things that may be a little embarrassing, uh, a little irritating, uh, just otherwise strange, I look at their mom and I remind them or remind her that, well, there you are. You know, (laughs) there are your genes as well. They are just like you. And although um, I would like maybe to believe that that's the case, Uh, that the little things that are bad that come out of them are from her. The truth is I know that a father's influence is greater than any individual um, influence in a person's life. And I know that when I use the term father, that term generates in all of us a different response, some kind of emotional response based in um, our personal stories. We all have fathers. That's one thing that we know, whether we know them or not. And the truth is that there are, from our experiences, we've had some great or good fathers. Uh, some of us have had some ordinary kind of, you know, uh, average fathers. Uh, some have had some absent fathers that have abandoned. Um, some have had really terrible fathers and abusive fathers. Everyone's had a father. And so when you talk about father and even God is a father, that can generate a negative or positive response or no response at all sometimes. Uh, And though every child is born with their own head, their own personality, and their own hearts, and their own hands and feet that they have control of, I do believe that, at least in reference to my boys, what it means to be a man, what is true and false, what is right and wrong, um, is not as much taught though it is, but is certainly caught by the words that they hear and watching the example of their dad. And there is, I think by God's design, but statistics will affirm this design of God, there's a deep connection between children and their father. A very deep connection that goes beyond the surface, that goes beyond scientific explanation, but science certainly affirms what I think everyone knows. Children pick up, naturally, traits from what their fathers do and what they don't do, what they say or when they remain silent. Um, I am these boys' father and my daughter as well, and I should want them to uh, be like me. It should be my goal. But even if I don't want that, I am convinced that because I'm their father, I've already shaped them genetically. I will shape them physically, emotionally, and spiritually as well. Now, I do pray, and I do pray this, that uh, I will be a godly father, but because I know know my my insufficiencies. I fail as a father. I have failed uh, even this week. I will fail most likely next week because being a father is difficult. It's difficult, and um, I appreciate my parents um, much more every day that I have uh, with my children. But I I pray that my, my sons... Um, that God the Father will fill in the blanks where I have been uh, insufficient or deficient and that they will grow despite me um, and maybe somewhat because of my commitment to the Lord into godly young men who will have godly children of their own someday. That would be uh, a successful life for me. Um, And if nothing else happens and I don't become rich or famous, that's okay as long as I have godly children. Now, My hope is that um, being a Ford boy, and we've kind of added girl sometimes because Emerson feels left out, but we have a cheer, you know, we put our hands in like Ford boys, rah, rah Ford boys, and we are the Ford boys, and I want that to mean something. I want that to have some, some teeth to it. And my hope is that it will be obvious for the right reasons that these children are the sons and daughter, but sons of Sam Ford. Like that will mean something. And sometimes a person's father is not obvious. We're uncertain as to uh, who they are. And as we transition to a spiritual understanding of that, we see in John's letters up to this point, he's given us a series of tests. And the tests are determined, really, whether who are believers and who are non-believers. And it's a letter written to believers to not just to challenge their faith, but it is to increase their faith. And in this passage, in 1 John chapter 3, he provides us somewhat of like a Jerry Springer-style paternity test. You know what I mean? I don't think you—I know no one ever turns on Jerry Springer, but it's like this freaky thing. And every time I've ever like, kind of like flipped through the channel and saw it, there's always a paternity test involved. Like, you're the dad, you're the not the dad, whatever. John gives us this paternity test, if you will— for everyone to take, and the results are to reveal whether that person who takes it is a child of one of two different spiritual dads. Either a child of God or a child of the devil. And I know when you even say child of the devil, it just feels so charismatic, freaky, hyper-spiritual, but John uses this language, and we ought not ignore it and really take it to heart that John is saying, look, there are two teams, there's not a third. There are one or two teams that everyone in the world is going to be on. Up to this point, he said, there's the team light and team darkness. There's team confession, who's honest with their sin, and there's the team hiders, who hide their sin as they're in the darkness. There's God's family, and then there's the world. There are those that are saved and have eternal life, and those that are damned and have eternal death. So those are the two teams. There is not a third. And so before, though, we start talking about well, child of God, child of the devil, it's so black and white. And before we become John haters because of how you know black and white he is and how he draws these very stark lines, let's not forget that Jesus was the first one to draw the same lines. Yes, Jesus. Mr. Meek and mild, never said any hard words. Au contraire. Okay? In John chapter 8, he speaks very boldly about people who claim to love God and know God, and he describes them in the same way that John does. In John chapter 8, verse 42, here's what he says to the men he's speaking to, the religious who believe they love God, and yet they reject Jesus. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? He answers his own question. It's Because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus was the first one to say, your daddy's the devil. And the reality is, You are either a child of God or a child of the devil. And what characterizes the difference between those two kinds of children is one's disposition towards sin. This is what John's going to say. One's attitude about sin and their disposition towards specifically the practice of sin. One child practices righteousness. One practices unrighteousness. What's righteousness? Well, anything God approves as right. That's what righteousness is. Now, in verse 10, John plainly puts forward the test, and he says it, by this it is evident. In verse 10 of 1 John chapter 3, here's the evidence for those who are children of God and who are the children of the devil, colon, which means here we go, here's the test. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, I think it's tempting when you read that Maybe it's not for you, but it has been, when I've read it in the past, to dismiss John's words as aggressive, reckless, kind of, you know, something he's being a shock value, kind of like something Donald Trump would say, like, yeah, there's some truth in there, but he's kind of a psycho, so, you know, whatever. Okay, That's what I think we're tempted to do. He doesn't really mean that. We We begin maybe to start revising what John says, softening what John says to, Basically make us feel better about our own sin. The fact that, wait, I'm a Christian and I sin. John must be wrong or I'm not going to read 1 John anymore. Okay. The heart of what John is attempting to get at here, though, is that faith in Jesus changes an individual. It changes them from the inside out and it changes all of their desires. And it not only changes their relationship with God and in terms of the eternal destiny, it changes their relationship with God in the present, in the reality right now. And it's a change that is delightful. It's a change that is powerful. It's not a change of putting a a backpack of burden on as much as taking one off. Now, we will, John says here, When Jesus returns, he says at the beginning, he's coming back. When he returns, we are going to experience a new life in Jesus. We will see him. We will be like him. In a moment, we will be immersed in the glory of God, and I believe we will be restored completely in every way into who and what God designed us to be. Now, John doesn't elaborate exactly what that means, nor does Paul. Like, what does it mean to to be like him? Now, I do know that it is better than any and the best conditions this world could ever offer. That's one thing I do know. Exactly what it is, I'm not sure, but we will be like him in some sense, and being like him is certainly better than the best life you can imagine here. But this life then is is a beginning with an end that is glorious, an end that's a full restoration, an end that is something we should hope for and rejoice in. But it is a beginning. As in, something is happening while we're here till we get to that end. And it is the beginning, I believe, of looking more like our Father. Every day... By loving Jesus more and loving sin less that 's what we ought to look like over time will we ever achieve what we 're going to look like and perfect no but there should be a growth there should be a closer resemblance if you will so john 's test here is not to determine whether we sin or not pass or I fail that one okay I sin but it is to determine what is our heart attitude really towards sin? Towards the things that God says He hates? What is our attitude towards sin, regardless of being with anybody or communicating? When you are all by yourself, what is your heart attitude? And so John gives us in verse 4 here a very helpful definition of sin so we understand exactly what sin is that we're supposed to have this disposition toward. He says in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also, practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, John defines uh, sin as a deliberate, intentional, volitional breaking of God's moral law. Sin is lawlessness. Now, we need to remember that sin is not just brokenness, although it is. It's much more comforting to talk about brokenness. We talk about brokenness in our story. Um, how we are uh, incomplete, and all these things, that we have deficiencies, and yes, it's brokenness, but it's not just brokenness. Sin is also not just falling short of God's standard of perfection. Okay, It is. It certainly is falling short, but that's not all it is. John here says that sin is rebellion against the Creator. It is rejection of His moral law. See, that is the problem with this world. Rebellion. Mankind did not fall because it tripped accidentally. Oops. Mankind stood on a diving board, bounced several times to get extra height, jumped in head first into an empty pool, that God said was empty, there's no water, uh uh-huh, smiling, head first into the bottom of the pool, and then got up and pretended that they weren't hurt. That is what happened, okay? It's not just, oops, I fell in. It was deliberate rebellion. Men fell because our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God's command, and they believe the promises of sin that still say God is a liar, God's word is not trustworthy, something other than God is going to make me happier, God is not fair, I know better than him. That's the fall, okay? And it was a choice that they made. And like the good heretics of John's day, which we have our own today, the world is Today has also redefined sin to make it a bit easier to swallow than calling it rebellion. Because rebellion sounds so strong, it sounds so intentional. Yeah, it does, because it is. Today's heretics teach that our brokenness or the problem with the world is not bad hearts, but it's actually sometimes bad thinking, bad education, bad parents. Bad culture, bad experiences, bad school, bad socioeconomic situations, bad governments, even bad movies, bad music, or bad video games. Okay? Outside of our hearts, those are the things that are a problem with the world. Now, the reality is the problems with the world, the problems with us individually, have very little to do and are not derived from. The bad things in the world. Because the truth is, many of those things, all is in God made a world that was good. And sin is what perverts those bad things into something bad. Okay? So it's not bad things. The problem is bad men with bad hearts who are rebellious against a good God. That is sin. It's not just brokenness, it is lawlessness and rebellion. And if we pervert sin, if you're tempted to change sin into something other than that, many people do, in order for them to be able to manage sin. How do you manage sin? Here's how I'll fix the sin problem. If it's just bad things, I won't look at them. Um, If it's just bad stuff, I'll just find something better to do. What happens is saving or salvation comes from hope and new laws new pills, new ways of thinking, new counselors, new books, new TV shows. Rebellion, though, if it is rebellion, it's not fixed by those things. Rebellion, heart-rooted rebellion and lawlessness is only resolved through repentance. That's the only thing. So there's a difference. Repentance and turning from our sin to God. Now, Here's where your mind is probably going. Yeah, there are, there's a lot of lawlessness out here. There's tons of lawlessness in this world. Man, this world is lawless. They, I mean infamous they, they are lawless. Man, that world. Okay, we're not talking about their lawlessness. We're talking about yours and mine. Our lawlessness in our hearts. We, men, disobeyed God's moral law and positioned ourselves as our own lords making our own rules and laws. Now, the moral law of God forbids all kinds of evil, whether it be thought or word or deed, but it also commands good. So whenever we break God's law, we do so sometimes by the things that we do and sometimes by the things we don't do the things in times when we hate or we do the very things God forbid us or when we don't do the things such as love thy neighbor as he's asked us to or give to the orphans and widows as he's commanded us to do. So in verse 5 and 8, John says that that lawlessness, those hearts, is why Jesus came and he came to take away sin and destroy the lawless works of the devil. So Satan then, if we understand that logic, His work is to undo everything that Jesus has done. And he does this by setting himself in opposition to God's law and to God's will, to God's character, to God's truth. He fights against God's families, God's work, God's people, their children, and ultimately God's glory. And what he does is he takes all those good things that God created and he makes them bad by injecting rebellion wherever he can. And he's done that since the beginning. He takes the good food that God has given us and he makes us pervert it and worship it. Whether it be relationships, food, money, sexuality, whatever it is, even work, even religion, the things that God gave that were intended to be good, he injects rebellion so that they pervert against the ways that God would have them done and the way he designed them to be. And the Bible doesn't exactly explain why the devil has always been doing this. It does explain somewhat figuratively his fall, and how was rooted in pride. But what it does say is that his principle of living, Satan, part of his character is lying and rebellion. He is called the father of lies. And as a father, John says, Daddy Satan has his kids. And the devil's kids, the devil's children, are men of flesh, sinners who are called by Scripture enemies of God, several times. Yes, men are lost, but we must not think them lost passively, right? They are lost in rebellion. Romans 1 talks about they've exchanged the truth that they knew for a lie. They are lawless men, hostile in mind and heart toward God. They hate God, they fight against God, and many eventually become foolish atheists who say that there is no God. They do not desire to change teams. Now, John describes them as, as lawbreakers seeking to do what's wrong, taking advantage of people by not loving their brothers, and making a a practice of sin, cooperating with Satan. They habitually, constantly have a life of practicing sin. They work to hide their practice of sin. They enjoy, according to Romans 1, their practice of sin. And they also directly or indirectly encourage others to enjoy and pursue the practice of sin. These are the children of the devil. These are the ones... Quite frankly, described as those who do not know the Father by denying Jesus. They do not love the Father. They do not fear the Father. They're not afraid of God's wrath. People say, well, you know, I'm living in sin, no big deal. Whoa. I've had people say to me, well, if I get to heaven and God hates me, then so be it. Are you serious? You really, do you really hear what you're saying? There's no fear of God in that person. They ignore the voice of the Father. Think about your children. Okay, do this, do this. Well, whatever. They ignore the voice of the children. They disobey their Father and His rules. They despise the Father. They speak lies about the Father. They doubt the Father in that they don't trust that He's actually true, that what He's saying is good. They have their own ideas. They dishonor the Father, and they hope in anything else but the Father specifically the world. Those are the devil's children. The question for all of us is like, well, how do you become the devil's children? Do you accept the devil in your heart or something? Because I want to avoid accidentally doing that. Okay? Let me give you uh, what Scripture says. In order to become a devil's child, you just have to be born. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many have been born but that's what the Bible says it says that everyone is born a child of the devil everyone is born a sinner the Bible is clear that everyone is born a sinner by nature and by choice the desires of simple men then when you are born from the womb are for everything that is not God. That doesn't mean that we become the Adolf Hitlers of everything. By saying that, you know, we are born children of that doesn't mean you become the worst you could possibly be. Because whatever you are now, even Hitler could have been worse. Okay? What it means is that you're not absolutely depraved in that you do the worst things possible and love as few people as you can, it means that every part of your being, thought, word, action, deed, everything is born saturated in sin. That's shocking. Should be, I don't feel like a devil's kid. Sinners, though, freely make choices, and those choices are governed by the lawlessness and rebellion in their heart, and the sin in us, in the child of a devil, prevents them from making the one choice that they need to make, which is to love God the Father. As Paul teaches, God allows mankind to pursue what is their desires. He lets them go, and as a result, they consume everything that a father is intended to protect them from. And as men search what you have seen and maybe have experienced for meaning and purpose and hope and beauty and joy, they end up worshiping all different parts of creation to find that. We are by nature born children of sin, children of the devil, and I'll just let the Bible speak for itself to prove that. Ephesians chapter 2 has a great passage to read. I'll read the first few verses and it says this. Paul writing to a church in Ephesus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind the Bible calls anyone who is born. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 2, I believe, I'm going to skip around verse 12 to 16, but there's a couple in there I'm hitting. He describes us like irrational animals. You know what irrational sin is? Just look at representative wiener. Okay? I mean, you couldn't... I was trying to think if you even could make up a story that ironically crazy and if I did, you'd be like, that's just kind of stupid. But no, you can't. Like, seriously? And knowing who he is and how much he had to lose, you go, why would you ever do that? Sin is completely irrational. Completely irrational. Sometimes my children do things, and I'm like, why would you eat that? Right? Right? why would you cover your entire body with that? It doesn't make any sense. I told you what it would do to you, right? It's irrational. You see like celebrities out in the world that have, uh, you think, everything they could want, beautiful spouses and some of the the darkness they go into and you're like, what are you doing? Sin is totally irrational. So he says, irrational animals, creatures of instinct. Born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they're ignorant. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. In verse 14 he says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Children of the devil. So let me just be bold before I give you the good news, and that is, if you are a confessed Christian, if Jesus has saved you, know that all that I just described describes how you once were. Okay? This isn't like, yeah, those devils... That was you. And though you may think that you don't have the horror story that others might have, You don't think that you have as many dark chapters as the other. You have plenty of dark chapters. And the only reason that you don't really think or know or have come face to face with your dark chapters is because God has never revealed to you the depth of your sin. If God were to show you your sin in a moment, every thought... Every action, every word, every time you hated and every time you didn't love as you ought, you would be overwhelmed with grief and sorrow because it is dark. And my prayer, actually, for those who think they have a nice little fairy tale, like I was, you know, good thing I was saved from having go through the devil's kid time, is that God will at some point reveal that to you. Because I believe that that is the only way that you can actually Fully understand the love of God and the grace of God is to know all of the depth of your sin, which, quite frankly, I don't think God will ever fully reveal to you. But if he does, and I pray that he does, I believe that you actually, in turn, will become much more empathetic, much more compassionate, much more loving towards others and their brokenness, and their need for Jesus. And if you are not a Christian, this describes you right now. This describes you right now. And my prayer is that God will open your eyes to see the dad you've been following in all his ugliness and in all his abuse. And that that will drive you and open your eyes to receive the love of the true father that comes through his son, Jesus. But the beauty of the gospel, beginning in John's own gospel, in John three sixteen, that God so loved the world full of the devil's kids that he sent his own kid to die. The son of God, Jesus, came that sinners might be adopted as children of the Father, Heirs along with the true son. The characteristic of daddy devil is to sin. And the characteristic of Jesus is to save. Jesus came that he might remove, not just improve, not just kind of refine. He might remove our lawless, rebellious hearts. Give us new ones with his words written on them. That we might delight in God, not like a boss delights or an employee delights like having a good boss, but like a child delights in a father who loves them. And every child, I don't care who you are, I don't care what your experience with your dad was, good, terrible, whether he was there or not, every child wants to hear their father say, I love you. In Galatians, I'm sorry, in the very beginning of John here, where we started, he says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are, not just will be. The reason why, he says, the world does not know us, they did not know Him, beloved, we are children God's children now. Now. He began this section by, by focusing on this inconceivable, amazing, incredible, really almost crazy love that the Father has for His children. God is our Father. Sit on that for a second. I realize it. you have connotations attached to that, but God is your father, for those who believe in Christ, a child is not what will be one day with him, but what we are right now, in this moment, for those who have confessed Christ. What's that mean? It means we experience his blessings, his rights, and the privileges of a son right now. Now, this is not the imperfect father that you may have had or seen. This is the perfect father the perfect Father in every way, perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly powerful, perfectly all-knowing, perfectly merciful, perfectly gracious. And this perfect Father gave us everything He had that we might have everything we could ever need or want. This is the Father Who never, ever fails, though our earthly fathers fail. I fail often. Your father failed you in some way. But this father never fails. He never fails to protect. He never, ever fails to protect you. He never, ever, ever speaks words that are rash. Unplanned words of anger in response emotionally without control. He never grows impatient. If you are a father, you know how easily it is to become impatient with your children. It takes about that long for me to get impatient. Why? Because I have other stuff I want to do, because I don't want to be bothered by having to help in the moment. The children become, at times, inconvenient to what I think is more important. The Father never does that. Do we understand that? Do we understand that the Father is never, ever, 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 ever distracted by anything that would take away from you? that he's never, ever too busy to listen. I understand that. If you can picture your, your, your heart as, as, as a house and a fireplace where Jesus is sitting there with two chairs, he's always sitting there waiting. Always. Inviting. Always. That's the beauty of adoption. He initiates Everything. He pursues everything, and he's waiting to talk with you. And it's not like as you're talking with him that he's thinking about all the other millions of people and the things he has to deal with and making sure the sun comes up and that you know, gravity works and all that stuff. Okay? Hold on, hold on, hold on. There's a tsunami over here. I got to take care of it. No. He's there, always, saying the right words, connecting you with emotionally, not distracted, looking at you. I and always... Our Father is never working too much to be with us. Our Father never fails to provide for us everything that we need, and really more than that. Let me ask yourself as a father, I know all these things that you think your children need. They need a home, they need a car so we can transport, you know, they need to make sure they have soccer so they can you know, be athletic and not 600 pounds. They need good food. They need a flat screen TV to enjoy their Xbox that they need. all the, Do you understand that your kids don't give a snarf about that stuff? That more than anything, they want you. If you were a father, just like, you know, whatever you want, just throw it down. Do you realize that after a lifetime of that, you're miserable. You have a bunch of stuff, but you don't have what you really wanted, which was dad. And we do the same thing in our relationship with God. We think, we pray, we ask for stuff. I want this, I want that. Change the circumstance when what we should be praying for is just him. That's really what you want. That's really what you need. And that's really what he gives himself. To know him is eternal life, John seventeen three says. As God's children then, empowered by the love of God that's birthed in us, that's the only reason we love Him and love others, the children of God seek to imitate their dad. And they do so, we talk about good works, we talk about works of righteousness, the things that God approves, we endeavor to imitate God not because we're motivated by the fact that He might spank us if we don't. Okay? We Imitate God out of a desire to make him proud. As if we could make him more proud than he already is. Catch that? My children, I love them. I cannot love them more because of the things that they do. I will not love them less because of things they don't do. I can't be more proud of them. And they should be told that. But they also should be told the same thing about their father. And the truth is, though, when my children do things that are honorable and righteous, I do delight in them. And God does delight. God does enjoy. He doesn't love less or love more, but he does delight. I want to imitate my father. Children of God know the Father. They love the Father. They fear the Father reverently. They know His power. They respond to the Father's voice. They, don't, they, they want to know what He says. What would you have me do? What is wise, God? Really? I shouldn't do that? Okay. They delight in the Father. They speak truth about the Father. They trust the Father, even when He tells them things that don't fit into their paradigm. They honor the Father, and they hope above all else in the Father, not in their circumstances. Well, how does someone become a child of God? Because sign me up. Right? They receive Jesus. John writes in his gospel in the first chapter, after talking about his own people, his own creation that rejected him, he did say that to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. We become children of God by accepting who Jesus is. By accepting that Jesus is God. By accepting that he died for my lawlessness, my sins for which I deserve death. We accept that that old life as a child of wrath was buried forever. And that he gave me new life through his resurrection. And having a new life now, not just a renewed life, not just Sam 4 2.0. A brand new life that's qualitatively different from the core. It means as John says to Nicodemus, this religious guy that comes in the middle of the night cuz he's embarrassed to like, you know, I don't want people to know I'm talking to you and he says, "You have to be born again." You were born once, you're the devil's kid, you need to be born again as a child of God. In verse 9, John says that no one who is born like this, born of God, makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. So, the qualitative difference is not only one's position, I'm now in the family of God, I've come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but I am totally changed in my relationship with Him, and I don't act differently because of some guilt or some duty. I act differently because I have the Spirit of God abiding in me. I imitate my Father naturally because He has become the dominating influence in my life. And our new relationship overpowers all of the abuse all of the brokenness, all of the crap we got from our first father. And we have sin, by the grace of God, conquered in us. Now, instead of rejecting dad, we go, what did dad say? What is dad like? What does dad want me to do? What would dad have me do here? What does dad think about this? We want to know. There's a desire there. Sin is Flat out just inconsistent with the nature of God and with his children. And John declares that this reborn person is not going to practice sin or keep on sinning. a lot of it's like, wait, 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 wait. I'm a Christian, I, I, I sin. And I don't believe he's talking about a particular moment of sin, but what he's talking about is the characteristic of a habit, a life, a constant rejection of God and his ways. So this doesn't mean that Christians never sin. This doesn't mean that Christians just won't commit the big sins. Right? Thank you, Catholics. This doesn't mean that Christian sin is different or doesn't stink like non-Christian sin. It's still all lawlessness. And it doesn't mean that Christians only sin by accident. No, you have plenty of intention and discipline in pursuit of your sin when you do. It means that Christians do not want to sin. Their disposition has changed completely. And Christians, genuine children of God, cannot sin habitually and practice it constantly without living in misery. Galatians 5 says it this way, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You will know who your daddy is if there is a conflict in your heart or not in practice of sin. There's got to be a tension. There's got to be a war. If there is no conflict and no tension, you know very quickly who your father is. And so we don't spend time thinking and looking for who Satan's kids, right? Let us not forget, as we take communion today, we confess not only our identity as a child of God, but our dependence upon Christ to help us be a child of God. That is the only reason that we are able to come to the table, that we are able to partake in the bread that is His body and the blood that is, or the wine that is His blood. And I'll end with a quote from a great writer named Jerry Bridges, who wrote Pursuit of Holiness, Practice of Godliness, Transforming Grace, I think where this quote comes from, as a reminder as you come to the table. Of this, He says that our bad days are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace and our good days are never so good that we are beyond the need of God's grace. That's how we come to the table as children of God, knowing that we make mistakes and confessing that we do and then living in the joy that we have a father who still says, I love you. Still says, I'm proud of you. Still says, I want you. Sin will tempt us to play house with another daddy. And my prayer is that as we endeavor to imitate the father, know that we can always love him, fear him, respond to him, obey him more, and always love sin less. And I pray by the spirit, we will endeavor to imitate the father because the last thing I think we want is to stand in judgment as we standing before God in the end, and Him go. Um, I think we need a paternity test here. Not really sure. Imitate the Father. Imitate the Father. Through Christ.